The Business of Culture, Media and Technology, Markets and Politics, Authors, History. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. You get to a point where you get an older leader, you get an ailing leader, you get a health problem, and then suddenly all the suppressed tensions in the elite level that are there from the way in which Xi Jinping has purged so many of his rivals and uh, antagonized so many sort of patronage networks and so on, they're not gone away. They're just sort of below the surface. 34 years after the crackdown in China's Tiananmen Square, CNN's longtime Beijing bureau chief, he's been covering China for a half a century, reflects on the economy's meteoric ascent, the deterioration of relations with the United States, China's Orwellian surveillance state, and socioeconomic cracks in the widely accepted story that this will be the Chinese century. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salomon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Joining us from Taipei is Mike Chinoy. He is a non-resident senior fellow at the USC US China Institute. He spent 24 years as a foreign correspondent for CNN. He was the network's first Beijing bureau chief, clearly like in the late 80s through Tiananmen Square. He was a, a person who witnessed history, and he talks about much of it in his uh, new book, Assignment China, an oral history of American journalists in the People's Republic. How are you, sir? I'm very well, thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, you know, we talk about the, the irony of, we talked about it offline, your birthday uh, roughly coincides with the, you know, Tiananmen crackdown. And so every year you get brought out and you get asked about it. <laughs> but in reading your book, I'm struck by the fact that you've been pursuing this kind of siren song of China for the better part of 50 years now. Take me back to 1973. I first went to China in 1973, right when I finished college, I got on a student group. It was just a year after Richard Nixon's uh, first trip, and so it was one of the the, the I was one of the first Americans uh, to go. And of course, back then China was still in the throes of Chairman Mao's Cultural Revolution. Everybody wore little Mao buttons. Everybody dressed in shades of gray and blue, uh, and people just parroted the party line. And uh, it was a fascinating sort of moment, the kind of tour you went on then was factories and uh, uh, coal mines and automobile plants and people's communes and officials trotted out success stories, which I later discovered when I became CNN's bureau chief and retraced the trip. Many of them were false, but it was very interesting. And then uh, when I moved to Hong Kong in late 1975 to begin working as foreign correspondent, I had the advantage of having seen China during Mao's time, uh, during the Cultural Revolution. And then I had a ringside seat uh, based in Hong Kong uh, from 75 to 1983 as Mao died and uh, Deng Xiaoping, who took over after Mao's death, slowly began to open China to the world and began to implement the economic reforms, which eventually 
underpin this astonishing economic boom that China has experienced. So I feel very lucky to have been around long enough to have seen China in the darkest days of Mao and then through all of the reform and opening up and then the Tiananmen crisis and then the boom that followed up to the present day. I, I'm, I'm now in, in Taiwan and before that was in Hong Kong uh, watching China from outside as sadly it seems that uh, a lot of the things that accounted for China's success in recent decades are being undone by Xi Jinping. Well, if we wanted to look at the experiment, I mean, it is a rather unprecedented experiment over those 50 years and various regimes and so much turmoil and uh, utter change kind of in the global supply chain. China has managed to catapult, I don't think it's an exaggeration, hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. It wasn't even an emerging market. It was a frontier market. And now it's the second biggest economy on the planet. It's on the brink, they keep telling us, of surpassing the United States, I guess, in purchasing power parity. Could you have ever imagined that when you were trying to get in in 1973? When I visited China for the first time, I went from Hong Kong. And back then you took a train to the border and you walked across this little covered wooden bridge into the what was then a little fishing village called Shenzhen, which was a few main streets and a few rice paddies and a few water buffalo. If you look at Shenzhen now, or even if you look at Shenzhen a dozen or 15 years ago, it looks like Hong Kong. It's got high rises. It's packed full of cars. It's got neon signs. Um, it was unimaginable that the Chinese would be able to do this. And I think it's, it's, uh, it's a tribute partly to the way in which they, they implemented their reform policy, and, which allowed the entrepreneur, the sort of instinctive entrepreneurial energy and abilities that so many Chinese people have uh, to, to flourish. So it, it, it is remarkable. And there is no question that the, the lot of the average Chinese person today is vastly better than it was when I first visited China. That, of course, brings with it many problems and question marks, but they are a different set of problems and question marks than when I uh, first went to the People's Republic. And here we are. I can quote a stat from, um, <clears throat> let's say, a, a decade ago. China coming out of the financial crisis, which really walloped the United States and the West, as you know, but it prided itself on being able to weather this, I guess, it, with its enormous reserves and its dry powder. We do know that China produces, consumes about two-thirds of the world's cement. And that one stat, I'm sure you get hit over the head with it a lot. Between 2011 and 2013, China consumed 6.6 gigatons of concrete, which is more than the United States used in the entire 20th century. And if you think about 1901 to 2000 in the United States, Empire State Building, every skyscraper, the interstate highway system, the Hoover Dam, and that only came to 4.5 gigatons. And it's one that I, you know, I've had Jim Chanos on the show, the, the China skeptic hedge fund manager. He had his analysts run that and run that again. And yes, that is what happened. So it's, it's breakneck growth. It's unbelievable dry powder. But it also, I think, adds to skepticism that it's just not sustainable. China was added to the World Trade Organization, I believe, in 2001. And mm -hmm. it hasn't had a hard economic landing in the more than two decades since. The Chinese have, have, have done, you know, generally pretty well during these deco decades of reform and opening up. And it's really only when you go to China that you realize it's how big it is, how many people it has. I mean, the scale of everything there is just off the charts and it doesn't really hit you until you're, you're on the ground. But I think today it's a very complicated situation because... Uh, since taking power, uh, Xi Jinping has kind of 
shifted priorities. Uh, it used to be uh, under Deng Xiaoping and under Deng Xiaoping's successors uh, that economic growth was, was central to everything. That was the, the be-all and the end-all in terms of uh, the goal of the Chinese Communist Party. And it was partly, particularly after the crackdown in Tiananmen Square in, in uh, June of 1989, um, it took a couple of years before Deng kind of uh, got the economic reform process going again. But there was always, post-Tiananmen, a kind of implicit bargain between the Communist Party and the Chinese people, which was crudely put, you don't challenge our monopoly on political power and we will give you the space to get rich, pursue your personal lives, uh, stay out of all the choices that the Communist Party used to get deeply involved in, where you could live, who you could marry, whether you could travel, essentially leave people alone and in return that they left the Communist Party's monopoly on power alone. And that worked to a point for a while. But Xi Jinping, with his emphasis on security, with his focus on reviving kind of ideological education, with his uh, deep suspicion of, of the outside world. I mean, he's, he's really never lived overseas. He's, he doesn't have that kind of background. Even Deng Xiaoping was a student in France in the 1920s. Mm. And so um, see what we've witnessed is the freezing, slowing or undoing of a lot of the policies that made the Chinese economic miracle uh, as successful as it was, and the alienation of key sectors of Chinese society and of uh, the international community, who also played critical roles. So foreign investors are in a much more awkward situation now. Educational exchanges are drying up. You've got a couple of generations who've come of age living this bargain I mentioned, that they get on with their lives and the party leaves them alone and they leave the party alone, suddenly they're having to do ideological education. They're having more people graduating from universities who can't find jobs. They've got a demographic time bomb because in a decade, uh, over a third of the huge Chinese population is going to be in their 60s or above, and they don't have a social safety net that works. And C's policies have been control, 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 rather than how do we get the economy going to address all these things? And so, so while it, it looks like this amazing dynamo in this inexorable rise, the fundamentals underneath, I think, are quite fragile. And, and so I don't buy the inevitable long-term rise of China because I think those, the, that fragility will become increasingly uh, an important factor in the coming years. And how often, Mike, you get asked about Japan? I mean, after all, only recently, I think, did the Nikkei, the stock market there, revisit its 1989 levels. I remember in the 1980s, you'll see films like Gung Ho or the level of Japanese being taken in college or Japanese right. study abroad and Rockefeller Center. Mm -hmm. And that has been a dormant story for more than three decades. Well, I'm not a Japan expert, but yes, the, ja the Japanese economy definitely. No, but the comparisons slopes, so. to Japan. There right. are those that are saying it's definitely China's century, but others right. are saying it's going to run into this demographic yeah. buzzsaw and then bubble spending. There's a school of thought that says, you know, coming collapse of China. I, I don't buy that. The Chinese Communist Party has weathered far more severe crises than anything that's on the horizon at the moment. But the things that made China so successful from the late 70s until quite recently, are being undone in critical ways by Xi Jinping just when all these other factors are coming uh, into play. And then you add to it the whole 
increasingly poisonous international climate with the U.S. and China at loggerheads on so many issues. And the Chinese, again, in my view, essentially scoring one own goal after another and souring their relations with some of their crucial neighbors, the Japanese, the South Koreans, the Vietnamese, the Filipinos, the Indians, as well as important trading partners like in the EU. Um, so it's problematic looking forward. And I think part of the sort of obsession with control and stability is maybe at some core level they sense that. But I think it's going to be bumpier going. A China scholar wrote a, ver a book, Susan Shirk at University of California, San Diego, wrote a book called China Fragile Superpower. And I think that's a very apt description. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Mike Chinoy. He spent a good quarter century as a foreign correspondent for CNN, where he was the network's first Beijing bureau chief. He's now non-resident senior fellow at the USC US China Institute. Mike, how and when did they turn the spigot on? What was the tipping point? I mean, we're going to get into Tiananmen, but at some point, I, I was in college in the early 90s, and at some point, China ceased being a kind of a, a backwater frontier market to economic juggernaut. Were they just sitting on treasury reserves or some know-how? I mean, as I understand it, there was a cross-pollination between kind of military technology and the electronics business there, which became a national champion. And they just parlayed this into manufacturing dominance. But I'm trying to go back at kind of a year of inception. I mean, the year of re the, the, the year, there, there are two critical years, I would say. Um, one is sort of late 78, early 79, when the, the Deng Xiaoping got the Chinese Communist Party to adopt this goal, what was known as the four modernizations agriculture, industry, national defense, and science and technology, followed by normalization of relations with the United States. And then Deng realized that to modernize, China had to reconnect with the rest of the world. So they began first in a kind of experimental way and then in a broader way to welcome in uh, foreign investment, to try to acquire and understand and use foreign technology to offer the advantages they had, which at that point were low cost and vast amounts of labor to international investors. And as I say, it started out in these so-called special economic zones like Shenzhen, which I first visited when it was a little village uh, in 1973. And that's where I remember as a correspondent covering the opening of the first joint venture hotel in Shenzhen in hmm. 1980, hmm. a little, you know, four story brick building that's long been since been demolished. And then that intensified throughout the 1980s. There are lots of big American companies, multinationals got involved. And Tiananmen kind of uh, soured that briefly, but it didn't destroy it. And, by, and, the, and the second critical date is 1992. And that's when Deng Xiaoping, who was then into his 90s, in his kind of last hurrah stage, what is known as the Southern Tour, he went down to... Wow. Shanghai and then down to Shenzhen, where the, the, the first experimental zone where they, they experimented with market mechanisms. And the signal was, and he did to do an end run around the sort of ideological hardliners who wanted the political repression of Tiananmen Square to go along with not reviving the market economic reforms. But Deng essentially outmaneuvered them, and that sent a signal that it was okay. And then as the 90s went on, there was this, you know, there was this sense that suddenly, you know, the country was liberated from this straitjacket and investment poured in. I remember the 
the di- I mean, it, it's an interesting issue that comes up in my book, Assignment China, which is based on interviews with well over 100 correspondents who've covered the country from the 1940s to the present day. And people that I interviewed talked about the correspondents were very limited. You couldn't go anywhere. Nobody yeah, the, would talk the Potemkin, to you. The Potemkin villages, effectively. It reminds me of that kind of a, when a rare correspondent goes into North Korea. Right, right. Uh, which I've been 17 times, so I'm familiar with that. But by the mid-1990s, what was happening was places were welcoming correspondents and, and the local mayor or the party secretary would, I remember it happened to me, and it certainly happened to people who work for like the Wall Street Journal. How can we get foreign investment? We want to show you our plans for our new economic development zone. And it just... You know, Chinese are natural entrepreneurs and people are the Chinese, you know, it's just sort of, you know, they, people are very good at doing business. And when they were freed from those constraints and when the uh, and when the mantra mantra from the top became make, I mean, Deng Xiaoping's famous slogan is was it is glorious to get rich. And that sent a signal. And then it, the foreign companies saw both the potential for relocating manufacturing because it was cheaper and so on. And everybody had the fantasy of selling to this Chinese market, which has not always worked out. And that's a fantasy that long predates the communist revolution. But that, you know, and and by the late 1990s with Tiananmen a little bit in the distance, you had uh, Jiang Zemin, who was a relative pragmatist as, as the uh, party chief and Zhu Rongji as his premier, who was just a hard-nosed former Shanghai mayor who was really good at, he rammed through the restructuring of the loss-making state-run industries. He was somebody that foreign companies felt they could go to to work out problems. He was the main point person in the negotiations that got China into the WTO. And the leadership wanted China in the WTO because they felt the pressures that that would put on them would enable them to accelerate this move towards the market. So it's a lot of combination of factors over a number of years that kind of opened things up and led to this uh, astonishing explosion that, that has utterly transformed the physical and economic and psychological landscape of China. Mike Chinoy's new book is Assignment China, an Oral History of American Journalists in the People's Republic. I was struck, I think, in an explanation you gave that the way that accidentally China was surrounded. I mean, all of these international correspondents descended on China in the summer of 1989, not knowing that the Tiananmen crackdown was going to happen, but because of a Sino-Russia summit. So the stars aligned in a peculiar way, if you can go into that. Well, one of the great ironies here is that the coverage of Tiananmen, the, the live broadcasts from, from Tiananmen uh, of, during the spring of protests and then during the crackdown, were largely an accident of history, which was that the Soviet leader, Mikhail Gorbachev, was traveling to Beijing for a summit with Deng Xiaoping. And the idea was to put the 30-year-long Sino-Soviet rift, which had led in the late 1960s almost to a full-scale war between the two countries, uh, behind them. And this was going to be the crowning diplomatic achievement of Deng Xiaoping's career, having orchestrated the normalization of relations with the United States. As a result, Chinese officials were eager for international media coverage. And so when news organizations like CNN, for example, requested permission to bring in transmission equipment uh, and back in those days, uh, to massive do live satellite truck, satellite I dishes and microwave links and all the rest of that, 
And so all of this was set up because the idea was we'd go live from Tiananmen Square to show Gorbachev being greeted by Deng Xiaoping. But what happened uh, quite literally was the protesting students stole the stage on which this was going to happen. And I, I will never forget the morning of May 15th, 1989, CNN had gotten permission to do a live broadcast from the rostrum of Tiananmen Square. That's where Chairman Mao had proclaimed the establishment of the People's Republic. It's where he reviewed these hundreds of thousands of red guards during the height of the Cultural Revolution. And now I'm up there on this uh, rostrum with a colleague from Moscow going live. But what we're seeing behind me isn't Gorbachev meeting Deng Xiaoping. It's tens of thousands of protesters demanding accelerated political reform and end to corruption. And, you know, today when you can go live from anywhere using an iPhone, it's hard to sort of appreciate how unprecedented this was. And one result was that the drama of these protests and then the horror of the crackdown was experienced by millions of people in their living rooms and by governments in their foreign ministries as it happened live. And uh, James Baker, who had, was Secretary of State at the time, with whom I spoke for Assignment China, talked about this as, as as a kind of the first time he'd had to, you know, essentially think on his feet. Yeah, let me let me quote from him. He said, it, it caught me by surprise. I was on the air as it began to happen. I was very much caught on the spot. I do remember vividly thinking to myself, how do I handle this one? I remember being caught flat-footed. That's right. My colleague, late uh, Bernard Shaw, talks about Tiananmen as being the start of what became known as the CNN effect, in which events are broadcast live and the, the key players uh, are forced to respond in real time. Yeah, and I tweeted at you with this that I distinctly remember watching CNN live when the authorities came in and told him to unplug the situation. That's right. Uh, that was a that was I mean that and then set the stage for Iraq and all these other things that Iraq, mm. uh, CNN became indispensable for. I want to quote Nick Kristof at the New York Times in his book. In your book, he told you I was pretty scared on the square itself. I tried to keep a layer of people between me and the troops, but I remember realizing that I was a few inches taller than most of the Chinese, so it was a pretty critical part of my real estate that was exposed. There were people in the crowd who were getting shot. My notebook from that evening was damp with sweat from fear, just from fear. I ran to the hospital. There were lots of bloody people in the hallways and everywhere. One of the ambulance drivers showed me bullet holes in his ambulance. One of the things that shook me was a young man, roughly my age, who had been shot in the back and who was fighting for his life. He hadn't done anything riskier than I had. His luck has just run out. Now, that's June of 1989. We're talking 34 years ago. And I think no one could have imagined that that bargain that you talked about, that implicit trade-off after this crackdown, which we saw much of. I mean, right now, if you wanted to broadcast that crackdown, I imagine it might even be more difficult, what with the great firewall yeah. and the, the government surveillance and being to shut on, you know, shut on and shut off the internet. It wouldn't happen again. The Chinese Communist Party learned a lot of lessons. And so uh, there's no way uh, it, it would be permitted to take place. But one of the things that's so interesting is the degree uh, the, the, is the staying power of the crackdown in 1989. How many other events from 34 years ago get commemorated in so many countries around the world and forcing the Chinese authorities and now the Hong Kong authorities to sort of blanket the center of not of Beijing, uh, there's certainly stepped up security. Hong Kong is the, is the most interesting case because 
until China imposed its national security law. You a couple quite of, robust they, they, Every for this, year that yeah. was supposed to be a litmus test that Hong Kong's promised status as quasi-independent, yes. A, a, a sort of a separate autonomous region that where they would be allowed to maintain their freedoms and so on. And so you had thousands of people every year gathering in in a park to remember Tiananmen. Uh, but now that's that's completely uh, gone as part of the general extinguishing of political freedom and media freedom uh, in Hong Kong. But it's fascinating. It uh, it hasn't uh, in in people's memories. It's still there. And I saw a absolutely fascinating report about which says something about how people in Hong Kong think and how clever they are on June fourth. Which is not uh, is eighty nine six four nineteen eighty nine uh, six four. People in Hong Kong love to gamble. They love to bet on horse races, and so people go to the Hong Kong Jockey Club and place their bets. And you always pick a list of numbers, what order you think the horses are going to come in. And I read uh, a report that eighty percent of the bets placed on Sunday, June fourth, were for the numbers eight nine six four to come in in that order which is a very interesting way of people signaling what they really think, but they're not allowed to say. But it's so sensitive that the authorities in Hong Kong detained somebody who was driving a car that had 8964 on a license plate. Um, and I think as long, you know, so Tiananmen, there's a lot of scar tissue over Tiananmen, but the wound underneath hasn't healed. And it's possible, you know, years, decades from now, that it will become a rallying point if the political climate in China changes. My old professor at Yale University, Jonathan Spence, who was a, a great, one of the great Sinologists, I remember at the time saying, uh, June 4th, 1989 is a date it is going to haunt authoritarian governments in China for decades. And it does. And it has. Full disclosure, please do stay with us. This show podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe, is fulldradio.com. You can catch us on all manner of social media at handle fulldradio. And DM me, my DMs are always open, if you too would like to broadcast us on your air. My guest joining us now from Taipei is Mike Chinoy. He was, for a quarter century, a foreign correspondent for CNN, where he served as the network's first Beijing bureau. That was in the late 80s, and especially enduring uh, the Tiananmen Square crackdown. His new book is Assignment China, an Oral History of American Journalists in the People's Republic. He is also a non-resident senior fellow at the USC U.S.-China Institute. Let me ask you, um, in the indignation following that, and that trade-off, again, that you can make yourselves rich, you can pursue gratification economically, you can grow to the sky, just don't touch the third rail of politics or questioning Chinese communist control. Did that successfully kind of sublimate those political and democratic frustrations? Do you buy that, that people kind of have largely forgotten that? We did see rather unprecedented unrest in the past couple of years and rare footage of that come out. But it's hard to imagine, especially now in the surveillance state, that it's become true. Big Brother, you have people with social credit scores. You have everybody's face being recognized. You had drones out there monitoring the adherence to COVID lockdown. How in the world would people ever rise up again? Well, there's sort of two separate questions. One is the memory of Tiananmen, and two is sort of what will trigger political change in China. On Tiananmen, there's no question the Communist Party has been very successful in eliminating any historical reference to it. The folks who are old enough to remember it are getting older, and many of them, even if they were there and even if they were sympathetic or part, you know, participants, 
would probably be very cautious about talking about it. I've read accounts of younger Chinese who only who came to the States, for example, to study and learned about Tiananmen and asked their parents and discovered their parents had never told them they'd been there because they didn't want this to cause any trouble. So, you know, it's part of the historical legacy for some people, but a lot's happened in China. And I, 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 I'm extremely confident that vast, vast, vast majority of Chinese don't spend a second thinking about Tiananmen Square. I suspect people in the Communist Party and in the censorship apparatus think about it a lot more than ordinary people. But there is this other question of, you know, how does change come to China? And I, right now, I think China's heading into a, a very kind of darker period because there is this uh, the mastery of technology and of AI and the control mechanisms are so sweeping that um, it's, it's sort of hard to imagine that, that a, a spontaneous movement from below like that, which happened in 1989, is going to happen again. Um, and yet you do, you know, you had these demonstrations against the COVID lockdowns last fall. They weren't exactly what happened in 1989, but it was striking that people were so frustrated that they took the risk in spite of everything. It's hard to say. I think the trends in China now are going to continue to be towards tighter and tighter control, more and more international isolation, more and more suspicion of foreigners, of, of, of Westerners. And that's the dynamic for a while. But most of the other political upheavals that we've seen in the history of the People's Republic have been a combination of sort of issues in the society and divisions within the leadership. That's partly what happened in 1989. There was a division between some moderates who wanted to accelerate the pace of economic and political reform and hardliners who didn't. Uh, that, that's what happened after Chairman Mao died when the, his wife and the so-called radical extreme ultra-leftist gang of four supporters of the Cultural Revolution tried to seize power and were pushed aside by a more pragmatic coalition of old party veterans and generals and so on. And one of the things to bear in mind is that Xi Jinping has discarded mechanisms that Deng Xiaoping put in place to ensure there wouldn't be another sort of Mao-style, all-powerful mm. ruler who created all the trouble that Mao did. And so the so uh, Deng put in a mechanism where the the, par, the leader of the country would serve two terms and then would step down and then someone else would be appointed. So you'd have a, a relatively stable succession that, that, that uh, power battles did not end with the loser going to jail or being executed, but just being kind of pensioned off somewhere. And so in the late 90s, early 2000s, you had relatively orderly successions. But Xi Jinping has now thrown all those rules out the window and has made, has created a situation where he can essentially be emperor for life. He's 70 years old. There's no succession mechanism. There's no designated heir. He seems to be in very good health. Deng Xiaoping lived into his mid-90s, so it's totally conceivable so he could be around for 25 years. But you get to a point where you get an older leader, you get an ailing leader, you get a health problem, uh, and suddenly all the suppressed tensions in the elite level that have are there from the way in which Xi Jinping has purged so many of his rivals and uh, antagonized so many sort of uh, patronage networks and so on, they're not gone away. They're just sort of, you know, hide, you know, below the surface. 
So if you had a situation where the leadership split on major issues at a time, say, of, you know, major economic downturn or heightened tension with the United States or another destabilizing global pandemic, you fill in the blank of whatever scenario, um, then I think who knows? I mean, I'm not saying it, I'm not predicting it and, and it's certainly not going to happen anytime soon. But I think the ingredients are there for more uncertainty in the medium term than it may appear on the surface looking at China today. We get some uh, saber rattling from China's new defense minister in the wake of a near collision between a Chinese warship and a U.S. destroyer in international waters just this past weekend. The Chinese ship, it, it slashed directly ahead of the United States vessel. It was sailing through the Taiwan Strait with a Canadian warship. And he says the best way to prevent this from happening is that military vessels and aircraft should not come close to our waters and airspace. What does this have to do with your security? Watch your own territorial waters and airspace. Then there will not be any problems. Of course... Taiwan is very much front and center in the wake of Beijing consolidating control of Hong Kong in the wake of what you saw Russia doing with Ukraine. I would say another wild card in this is Taiwan's dominance in the international semiconductor industry was put in sharp relief during the supply chain shocks of the pandemic. Never, I think, would Taiwan have been so front and center as it is right now. Well, Taiwan is, is, has always been a very uh, difficult uh, issue uh, the Chinese Communist Party sees this as something on which it really can't negotiate. The people of Taiwan have essentially turned this island into a democracy, and they now have a voice, which was something that neither Chairman Mao or Premier Zhou Enlai or Richard Nixon or Henry Kissinger ever envisaged when they agreed on this formula in the 1972 Shanghai communique that allowed the U.S. and China to establish a relationship, sort of kick Taiwan down the road. It's a problematic issue. I, my own sense is that the Chinese, that Xi Jinping has tasked the Chinese military with acquiring the capability to attack Taiwan, but I don't think that they intend to do it, or certainly not in the near term, because the risks are too high, particularly of American intervention. And as Vladimir Putin has discovered in Ukraine, you may think you're going to win easily and suddenly you're in a complete quagmire. Uh, but I do think what, we're what we are seeing from the Chinese is a kind of attempt to ratchet up the pressure on Taiwan and an attempt to reassert what they see as their legitimate right to be the dominant power in Asia. And of course, since the end of World War II, it's the United States that were the victor in World War II that's been the dominant power in Asia. So but the they, throw this weight, they throw this weight around in the South China Sea, as you know. There are times when they're closer to Manila that they assert control of islands or certain pilings that are coming out. Yeah, the, well, the, you know, what, what, I mean, Deng Xiaoping had this saying, um, bide your time and hide your capabilities, get strong and just play cool for a while. That's not what Xi Jinping's approach is. I think the, 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 the I think the Chinese leadership has, feels that they now have the, the, the power and uh, the clout to sort of get their way where they wanted. And so, you know, they claim the U.S. is trying to encircle them and stop their rise. And I think there is some element of truth in that, but that is not, I think what, what, what the apologists for China forget is that is to a large degree a response to Chinese behavior. Don't forget you know, 20 years ago, the Americans were huge supporters of China getting into the WTO, and it was American companies who bankrolled so much of economic growth in China. So it's not been a longstanding American strategy to block China's rise. It's been far from it. But under Xi Jinping, 
particularly, um, the Chinese have concluded it's sort of their time. And I, I think this really goes back to the 2008-2009 financial crisis, which, as you mentioned earlier, the U.S. was really badly hit and the Chinese came out looking good. And I think that led to a conclusion that the U.S. was kind of decline, in, in terminal decline and China was on this inexorable rise so China could get away with throwing their weight around. So on issues that matter to them, like they claim all of the South China Sea, even though the Philippines, Malaysia, Vietnam, Indonesia, right. Brunei, Taiwan also claim it. So the Chinese are just creating literally facts on the water. They, they created man-made <laughs> islands. Uh, they claim Taiwan. So they're, they're almost daily intrusions by Chinese uh, planes into Taiwan's air defense but identification Mike, if you zone. Had to, if you had to truly game this out for me, right? Think about Apple, which just is just about the United States, you know, mega, mega, mega capitalized company. It's worth nearly $3 trillion. Apple right now could not exist without the Chinese exactly. supply chain. And if Apple disappeared off the planet, it would be hugely problematic for Beijing mm. and for Taiwan, Right. And so if a person if what's at stake for them, if if self-preservation for Xi Jinping is continued economic growth, continued feeding of that implicit pact made out of out, outside of the Tiananmen crackdown 34 years ago, how could they afford confrontation with the United States? How could they afford risking their economy? I mean, you can't really afford to cut off your nose to spite your face in this case with the U.S., no, I think that's right. I mean, you've never, I mean, people compare this to the Cold War, but the U.S. and the Soviet Union had very limited economic, uh, limited economic relationship. You never had a situation where the economies of two huge countries are so intertwined while their politics are so much uh, at loggerheads. And I think that, I think that's a constraining factor on China's side. And I think, to be honest, a lot of the Chinese behavior, some of it is, is real, like building islands in the South China Sea. But some of it is almost like performance art done as a military exercise. The Chinese are trying to achieve essentially political goals through flexing muscle, ideally without firing a shot. So I think, for example, on Taiwan, they're going to uh, make a lot of menacing noises. They're going to stage a lot of incidents that are... Uh, that looks scary, like the the, uh, the practice run for a blockade that they staged after House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited Taiwan last year. Uh, but that doesn't mean that it's going to be, you know, D-Day East Asia anytime soon, because the risks to China of that are going bad and devastating their own economy and calling into question the Chinese Communist Party's grip on power are so great. But what worries me in this situation is given the sort of stridency of nationalistic sentiment in, in, in China, given the, the nature of the discussion about China in the U.S., where politicians are falling over each other to show who can be tougher on China, uh, what worries me is the danger of an accidental conflict. Like the, the episode you mentioned, suppose two Navy ships collided and suppose one sank and suddenly there are 75 drowned American sailors or 100 drowned Chinese sailors. Then you have a situation where there's no crisis communication. The Chinese defense minister wouldn't even talk to the U.S. Secretary of Defense at a recent meeting in Singapore, nor take 
American phone calls after the spy balloon incident in the winter. You know, you could have a, the Chinese, and when Pelosi was here, they fired missiles over Taiwan. They went right over Taipei, where I live, but at 200 kilometers altitude, we didn't know hear about them at the time. Suppose one malfunctions and lands downtown Taipei and kills 100 people. And then you could get into an escalation cycle where you know, in the U.S., the uh, Republicans will say Biden isn't tough enough on China if he doesn't do something really muscular. Same thing on the other side. How could Xi Jinping be, you know, the rise of China, the Chinese dream, and yet you let the Americans get away with it? So the interesting example here is in 2001, an American reconnaissance plane, had, there was a collision with a Chinese jet fighter and an American reconnaissance plane off the Chinese coast. And the Chinese pilot died, the plane crashed, and the American plane made an emergency landing in Hainan Island, and the Chinese held the crew for 24 days, or 23 days, or something like that. Uh, and eventually, a, a, a face-saving statement was negotiated. But the I spoke to the, the fellow who did the negotiations, is an old friend of mine, who's the former U.S. military attache in Beijing. And he said that initially, when he tried to call his Chinese counterparts, they wouldn't answer his phone calls for the first three days. But eventually that was sorted. And that's where the Chinese president, Jiang Zemin, who wanted better relations with the U.S. because China was going into the WTO. And a U.S. president, George W. Bush, just taking office, didn't want a crisis with China. Today, Xi Jinping has staked a great deal of his reputation on China standing up and we're not going to take any grief from the Americans. And Biden, although more measured and nuanced in his language, has been very tough on the Chinese. For example, the restrictions on, on tech sales and so on. And yet he's still under attack from the, the Republicans for not being tough enough. So the, the danger of an accidental conflict getting out of control is what worries me. What kind of leverage in closing does the Democratic West have uh, with vis-a-vis -vis Beijing regarding the Uyghur population in the northwestern region there? We have seen, I'm quoting from the Council on Foreign Relations, the U.S. determined that China's actions constitute genocide. I mean, imprisoning more than one million people since 2017. There's been surveillance, religious restrictions, forced sterilizations, forced labor. What can you do if you even risk uh, uh, your counterparts there not answering your calls? There's very little leverage that's going to make the Chinese Communist Party change its mind. And of course, the Chinese Communist Party has a long track record of, of responding to pressure by digging in its heels. You know, it's a tragic situation. I think speaking out is important. Just keeping the issue in the public eye is important. But, you know, forcing domestic change in China is an extremely problematic issue because in the end, the U.S. can't tell the people of China how to run their affairs. Um, we can raise all sorts of questions, but the, the dynamic for change is going to come from within China. I think China's external behavior and the degree to which its internal behavior affects and shapes its external behavior is something else, where the U.S. does have leverage because it trades with China. There's all kinds of potential pressure points. But to identify repression of Uyghurs or repression of Christians and say, bad, 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 we don't want you to do this and expect the Chinese to do anything other than thumb their noses is, is highly unrealistic. Tragic, but it's, it's, it's very unrealistic. Mike, I know you're 12 hours ahead and I got to get let you <laughs> get to bed and whatnot over in, in Taipei. But before I let you go, I have to ask, and I'd be remiss if I didn't, CNN is very much in the news. Your old stomping grounds. You were there for a big chunk of your career. I believe right. you left in the mid-aughts, but it's very much uh, 
in sharp focus this week because of the turmoil happening at right. CNN internally and here in the United States with the decline of linear television and whatnot. But we were talking about Bernard Shaw and the primacy of CNN back in 1989. And still, if and when something like this were to happen again, we would still overwhelmingly turn on the TVs and be mesmerized. But have they cut foreign coverage? Have they have they short shrifted what made them stronger? Is it just a whole different world where Twitter and online and some of these other sources that you mentioned, these power bloggers, these people that have connections to the mainland like CNN might not even have anymore? I know CNN, I think, maintains a larger foreign staff than any other American broadcast network. And when it really hits the fan, like in the invasion of Ukraine, CNN still, despite all of the issues, does unparalleled coverage. But uh, I find what's happening now uh, very troubling and v- deeply upsetting as someone who spent almost a quarter of a century there. Um, when I joined CNN, the mantra was the news is the star. The, you know, the building up of personalities and the having people sort of pontificate and the evolution. It's not just at CNN, but the evolution of television news towards you know, a split screen with six different people yelling, you know, talking over each other on a particular issue. Uh, that to me is not offering what television news uh, is best at, which is sending a person with a camera out to a place where something is happening. And that person is, you know, is a trained, experienced reporter who knows how to ask questions and weigh evidence and who can write beautifully and who can put together something that folks will say, wow, that is really what is happening. And that's given me a window on the world. And I think, you know, if CNN can get back to that, and it's very hard in a polarized environment where simply by not being Fox, you define yourself politically, which has made it very hard for CNN to struggle to be in the center with Fox on the extreme right and MSNBC on on the left. But I think I think in the end, you know, fewer personalities pontificating, more resources dedicated to good reporters covering the news uh, is, is what will allow folks to sort of gain their respect for CNN and allow CNN to recapture uh, the quality that made it both such an important resource for so much of the world and such a wonderful place to work. And they've lost that to a very significant degree. And it's hard to say whether they're going to get it back. But I think that's, somebody asked me, I would say, put the focus on news gathering and downplay the other stuff. And and, and people will come because they're still in, in a democracy people need to know. Mike Chinoy was the first Beijing bureau chief and senior Asia correspondent at CNN, where he spent 24 years as a foreign correspondent. His new book is Assignment China, an oral history of American journalists in the People's Republic. And he is a non-resident senior fellow at the USC U.S. China Institute. Sir, so grateful uh, to you for burning the midnight oil and joining us 12 hours behind you here. Well, thanks very much for having me. Appreciate it. Full disclosure, please do stay with us. We wanted to close out this episode on China with some of my 2019 interview with Wei Jian Shan, whose journey from hunger and hard labor in agrarian China to now managing Asia's largest private equity fund is a metaphor for the nation's almost unprecedented transformation. Joining me from New York is Wei Jian Shan, chairman and CEO of PAG, the largest Asia-based private equity firm. It manages $30 billion in capital. His new book is Out of the Gobi, My Story of China and America. How are you, sir? 
I'm very good, even though it's very cold here. <laughs> I can understand. It's a cold snap. Thank you very much for having me on the Thank show. Thank you. It's a fascinating book that actually now that we hear about China being the, the biggest economic juggernaut that the, the world has seen in, in ages, and you to take us back to poverty and hunger and all of these different uh, agonies that you and your family endured during the Great Leap Forward. Um, I'm quoting from the book. It says, this is the story, as the book says, your improbable journey from the People's Republic of China to the People's Republic of Berkeley, California, and beyond. It's a uniquely American success story told with a splash of humor, deep insight, and rich and engaging detail. Uh, you were witness to the brutality and absurdity of Mao Zedong's policies during one of the most tumultuous eras in China's history. You were exiled to the Gobi Desert at age 15, and you spent your formative years doing hard labor. You were also denied schooling for 10 years and a secondary education altogether. Even so, you went on and came to the United States. You hold an MA and a PhD from Berkeley, an MBA from the University of San Francisco. You studied English at the Beijing Institute of Foreign Trade. Wow, you persevered in spite of all of these travails. And now it must be so surreal for you to read about China's economic inevitability in the headlines. It is. I think we have traveled very far from 40, 50 years ago. When I uh, spent uh, so much time in the Gobi Desert as a hard labor, what you have just read is put together by my publisher. I think they have done a very good job summarizing things. Now, when I read the book, the, the image, the lasting image that I'm going to take away from it is this China of poverty but ambition during Mao Zedong's uh, great leap forward, where he encouraged the country to take this leap forward through, I mean, harebrained schemes in hindsight. For example, everybody making these micro smelters of, of, of steel in their backyards where they collect, collect scrap metal and they have them in these furnaces and these kilns. And that if they pull these things together, that China can have the capacity to take on the world and not be dependent on uh, steel imports. I mean, it's, it's kind of risible in hindsight. <laughs> I think that was the objective of Mao Zedong at the time, and his first objective was to take over England as a large steel producer. And I think he strongly believed in the people's war, and therefore he thought the way to do it was to mobilize the masses to produce steel in everybody's backyard. And in hindsight, not too far away from that particular time, people realized it was simple madness. It was crazy and didn't produce anything useful. It was total waste of effort and a lot of resources. Now, we do China did ultimately become one of the most miraculous stories in the history of economic development. I'm quoting a story from Quartz that said, since China began its market reforms in the late 1970s, it has lifted more than 800 million people out of poverty, slashing the rate, the poverty rate from nearly 90% in 1981 to under 2% today as measured by the World Bank's latest spending benchmark. That's pretty unbelievable. Yes, it is. In fact, about 40 years ago, when China's open-door policy was first adopted, economic reform first started, the per capita income of China was merely about 400 US dollars, which was below poverty line uh, almost for any country. And today, the per capita GDP of the country is close to 10,000 US dollars, although it is still one-sixth that of the United States. So China 
still has a very long way to go, but it has come a very long way in the past 40 years. Now, it says China's per capita GDP went from being less than Bangladesh's in 1980, that was under $200, to more than $8,000 today. If you look back at this and in reading the book, and always people ask me, what was the tipping point? What changed? I mean, certainly a lot of us in the 1980s were told that Japan was going to inherit the world. And we have to learn from the Japanese. And everybody was taking Japanese in college. And there were movies like Gung Ho, and it completely captured the zeitgeist. And I remember at some point in the early 90s, there was a tipping point where we were getting calls from relatives and professors in, in high school and college were telling us that, no, it's actually... China, who is ready to inherit the next century economically. What do you think was the tipping point, both from a demographic perspective or a central planning perspective? If you take us back in your lifetime, the one decision, the one variable that, that put China on this kind of inexorable path. You see, in my book, Out of the Gobi, I described how we worked in the Gobi Desert before China opened up when Millions of young people were sent to the countryside to do agriculture, to do hard labor. At that time, all the economic activities were controlled by the government, almost 100% of it. There was nothing left. And yet China was in dire poverty, and the economy was a disaster. And uh, I was making something like $10 per year. Of course, we were provided with some food and uh, clothing, not enough, but the take-home pay was just about $10 a year. And that was the state of economic affairs that we were in at that time. And what happened in 1978-79, when China started to open up, was to abandon the central planned system, the old system of central planning which was very similar to the Soviet Union, and embarked upon a path in the direction of free market. So in the past 40 years, it was strong economic growth, but it was also a history of the growth of China's market. And it was the growth of the private sector, which I would say is mainly responsible for China's growth in the past 40 years. You write in your book of your early childhood, you could say, my mother was always the last to eat, although I did not realize that she was famished. I could see my mother's face and legs gradually turn puffy and her skin translucent. She showed me that if she sank the tip of her finger into the flesh of her leg, the dent would stay there for a long time as if the flesh was made of dough. You wrote that I did help my mother to get more food, however, always sensing it was needed. There were a few elm trees in our compound. We learned that elm seeds could be eaten. I picked up the seeds shaken down by the bigger children and brought them home. My mother would mix them with flour and cook them. I probably got a bite or two, but I do not remember really eating them. I also went around to find edible wild plants in every corner to collect them and bring them home. And when we step back from this and we, we, we finally realized that the, the Great Leap Forward and Mao's great plan uh, actually provided one of the biggest human catastrophes in terms of famine, there is an estimate that 20 million to 36 million Chinese, upward of 5% of the population, died during 1958 to 1962's leap forward. And that is a trauma that the entire nation really tried to recover from. It, it, it was emblazoned onto its memory into the 20 years leading up to the early 80s. And that is correct. And you know, today, China has the highest savings rate in the world, about 50%. And uh, you know why the Chinese save so much? 
I think a lot of people in my generation still remember the starvation, and therefore they're still concerned about the rainy day. And that experience was a very painful experience. It's like the stories of of our grandparents who are telling us about the Great Depression here, who they're never they're reluctant to throw away soap in the shower when it's worn down, that they never want to waste anything. They'd rather recycle and reuse. They think twice about giving away that old threadbare sweater or coat. Uh, but even so, this country has moved on in a way that is unbelievable. By the end of last year, there still remain more than 43 million Chinese citizens living below the nation's official poverty line of 2,300 yuan. That's annually about $350. Yes. China has come a long way. China has lifted more people out of poverty in the recent history than anybody else, than any other countries combined. But China is a very big country with a population of 1.4 billion people. China still ranks number 72 in terms of per capita income in the world. So China still has a lot of problems internally to deal with. And, uh, you know, there's more to go and there's a long way to go. And Chen, here's a problem that it seems everybody would want to have. China's economic expansion, this says the Wall Street Journal, languished to its slowest pace in nearly three decades last year as a bruising trade fight with the U.S. exacerbated weakness in the world's second largest economy. So writes the Wall Street Journal. The 6.6% growth rate for 2018 is the slowest annual pace China has recorded since 1980. How is that possible that that's a problem? I mean, we would die for that kind of growth. I think the data you just cited are not accurate. Uh, it is true that last year, the economic growth rate slowed down to 6.6%, but it was not the slowest since 1980. There were some slower years in 1989, 1990, and I believe 1991 as well. Those were slow years. It is also true that in the past 40 years, and China's growth has never stopped. And China has grown faster or slower. But on average, until five years ago, the economic growth rate has averaged about 10%, double digit. 10%, per- yeah, to say, quote the Wall Street Journal, a long way from a pace of expansion that averaged nearly 10% annually for more than three decades until slowing in the past decade. The 6.4% growth rate in 2018's last quarter is the slowest since the early months of the global financial crisis. Let me ask you, Shan, uh, and it's taboo in some circles. This is such an intensely centrally planned economy, and you don't know if you're dealing with a, a full-fledged private bank or a construction company or if it's just a proxy for the government in Beijing. How can you trust the numbers? I'm sure you are asked about this all the time. Well, I don't know the answer for that question, but uh, I do know that uh, a lot of people are looking at it, and there are many people doing business in China. China has become a big market for many American companies and many American banks, and uh, companies and banks from other countries as well. So there are economists, there are large institutions, there are world organizations such as the World Bank, IMF, looking at the data. And I think that more or less the data are consistent and there's no denying and nobody denies it that the economic growth rate has slowed down quite sharply last year to a tune of 6.6%. Can you describe the social compact for us? I mean, in this giant mechanism of bringing hundreds of millions of people out of poverty in a, in a whiplashing way that has never been recorded in, in history, I think modern or, or going back centuries, 
How do you do this? I mean, the general read is that people can understand that if they leave the countryside and come to any of these big cities on the coast, there are always manufacturing jobs, always, uh, whether you're in textiles, whether you're in plastics, whether you're in contract manufacturing or electronics, that that is ultimately the social compact. You can always come to the city or these these uh, incipient megacities and get a job and leave the poverty of you know the agrarian China that, that you remember from your youth in, in Mao Zedong's Great Leap Forward. Yes, for many decades, it looks that China is like a giant construction site from everywhere, from one side of the country to the other side of the country. And a major movement at that time was people, uh, peasants, farmers moving from the countryside to the cities in search of a job, and they are referred to as migrant workers. And they really helped build many industries and build many infrastructure projects. And uh, you know, in my time, when I was in the Gobi, as I described in the book, in 1969, China experienced the largest reverse urbanization that the human history has ever witnessed. That is, about 10% of urban population was sent to the countryside to do hard labor, including myself. But in more recent years, China is experiencing the largest urbanization process. Hundreds of millions of peasants going to the cities to do manufacturing job, to do service job. And then what? how much of these jobs do you think are ultimately supplied with government money? Are the government keeping the furnace burning? I mean, I, that, that's the burning question that everybody has. Are these... Are, 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 are these to kind of provide true private sector demand and consumption, these construction jobs or these manufacturing jobs, or does the government just have no choice but to keep that furnace running? I'm reminded of its much lauded uh, stimulus plan in 2008 during the global financial crisis to continue forward with these high-speed trains and these cities and these infrastructure projects and the amount of cement that was consumed just in those three years compared to, say, the United States in the entire 20th century. Yes. That was a very famous uh, data point. I think there's uh, a wrong notion that uh, the Chinese government controls all the economic activities and China has developed largely because of government control. I think that's just wrong. China has developed by moving away from centrally controlled system in the direction of a market economy. The state-owned sector remains fairly sizable but it contributes to about 30% of GDP. And I think that's still too big. And what China needs to do is to continue to shrink the state-owned sector. But today, if you look at the private sector, it has become the dominant force in economic growth for China. Today, the private sector contributes more than 50% of the tax revenue for the entire country, more than 60% of the GDP more than 70% of his R&D spending, more than 80% of his industrial output and urban employment, and more than 90% of his exports. In fact, of that 90%, more than half is done by firms owned by foreigners, that is, foreign-owned firms. So that's how big the private sector is, and that is really the largest driver of China's economy today. You are listening to some of my 2019 interview with Asian private equity mogul Wei Jian Shan. 
While we like to run long on podcasts, we only have so much broadcast time. The good news is you can catch the entire discussion. The episode is called The China Journey on Spotify, the NPR One app, and of course, Apple Podcasts. Indeed, wherever you get your podcasts, the link is full dradio.com. Again, fulldradio.com. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan at Notterly. A shout out to our listeners on NPR member station WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station, celebrating 50 years on the air. You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. The handle is Full D Radio. We've got big live shows coming up this fall, so do stay connected. My DMs are always open. And do not forget to catch me every week on MSNBC and NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. <laughs>